You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of Flash of Steel. I am your host, the good fellow, and Bruce, turn the music off. <laughs> Hello. Bruce just discovered the volume button on his stereo. I'm your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me is uh, freelance writer Tom Chick. Uh, hello. First of all, that's awesome that, uh, that Troy, you said that Bruce has a stereo, because of all the people that I know, Bruce is probably the one guy who I believe would be listening to music on a stereo. <laughs> uh, so also, I should let you guys know, before we proceed, I uh, have some unfortunate news. Uh I will not be able to get anyone a coffee this week because when I was making my own coffee, the handle snapped off the basket. Oh, good and lord! Created quite a. It was like you know what? It was like when the Hindenburg was was pulling into uh, Lakehurst, New Jersey. Everything's like calm and placid and going great, and then just and it's you know coffee grounds everywhere. Beans flew all over the kitchen. It, it was terrible. So I'm afraid there's no coffee for everyone. And New Jersey has had no first-class travel opportunity since. Yeah, let's hope that my kitchen can recover in terms of coffee making better than New Jersey. Well, it's an excuse to buy a new espresso machine, right? I just have to replace the basket. It's not that dire. Also with me is Bruce Garrick, the master of music. A thing I forgot to do, Tom, actually, is I forgot to hit the stereo button on my stereo. <laughs> Were so we listening to mono? That was actually in mono. Monoral. That's terrible. Yeah, right. Wow. We're gonna. Can we get a new AV guy? Yeah. Well, we need to get a guy first. <laughs> the musical interlude was brought to you uh, from the agile mind of Tom Chick, who thinks it is the perfect uh, entrance music for our topic today, which is maps. This is a sp- spin-off, I guess, from my three months and still going map series. Uh, I was supposed to finish up the, hopefully the final entry will be up by the time this podcast airs. I'm waiting for Brian Reynolds to get back to me with some comments on Rise of Nations. Uh, The series has, I chose 10 games back in February and bit by bit I've written essays on them with some feedback from developers uh, and observers and it's been fun, it's been interesting. Um... Some things I didn't get a chance to do, and I'd like to talk about some of that today. But why don't I throw it open to the panel for now? Um, I first of all, I just want to say uh, this, this podcast. I mean, this is like a great. I think of this as like a director's commentary for your series, Troy. Uh, also, in a way, I, this series was an awesome idea, very well done. Uh, I was kind of waiting. I mean, it's not quite finished yet. We're waiting on the sort of the the cherry on top of the Sunday. Uh, with the Rise of Nations entry, which will hopefully be up. Uh, but I sort of feel like like Bruce and I are just kind of, I mean, you've just said, you've said so much, and there's so much material in there that I, I feel like, well, we should just listen to you talk about it for an hour, because you've done some great stuff there, uh, and I would love to hear more. So I just want to say this podcast is sort of all about you, and and very well should be. You've done a great job yeah. with the series. Uh, I so agree, here's, a, let me just... Oh, go ahead. So before Bruce agrees, because nobody's going to hear this very much before Bruce and I agree, what I love about the series is you've done something that, and first of all, I hope the guys at Flash of Steel paid you well for it, because there was some great work there. Not nearly enough. I really need a raise. Especially after this series, you should get a raise. Because what I really like about what you did was, you weren't just writing about maps. I mean, that was sort of your hook. 
But that's a great way to look back at other games. I mean, so many of these sort of retrospectives are just this kind of, yeah, wasn't this awesome, and this game was great. And as someone who's done some plenty of those myself, that's kind of the easy, sort of lazy way to do it. But what you did was you sort of went back and looked at all of these great old games through a very definite lens. And to your credit, you were, you were very faithful to that lens. I mean, I would read them and think, okay, how is he going to tie this into maps? Uh, and in each case, I thought you did an awesome job with that. Uh, and so what I, I hope we can sort of do today is for people who might be too lazy to go through and read them, which they should do, is maybe you can sort of talk about each of the games for us in a sort of director's commentary capacity. Well, I mean, I'd like you guys to talk about the highlights. I mean, the, the games that I missed, I know that in an earlier episode, Tom, you thought that I should have done uh, Alpha Centauri, mm-hmm. which was on a on the a first draft of a list. This is the second uh, 10-part game series I've done. I did one on ancient Roman-themed games last year. And I always start with a long list, and then I cull it down based on the themes that I want to address. Um, and it was between The Sims and Alpha Centauri, and I chose The Sims because I thought I could do some interesting stuff with that. Mm-hmm. And Rod Humble seems to agree because uh, he commented that either fixing some of that stuff in Sims 3, mm-hmm. which, I hope, which I hope you can talk about. Um, but Bruce, you were going to say something. Oh, I forgot what I was going to say, except that now I don't agree with Tom because I'm all self-conscious about it. well i'll just go ahead and head that off in the past by saying that you're wrong bruce you do agree with me all right well now i feel better because uh, so well uh, the the themes i really wanted to address when i did the series one of them was exploration discovery and one of them was uh just symbology representation and exploration the two things i really wanted to deal with in the series and The Sims is kind of an outlier there. It doesn't have a lot of representation or a lot of exploration, but it does some really neat things with space and geography and time. Whereas I think most of the rest of the games have some of that, except for Populous, which is about deforming and destruct- destroying, um, which is a great game. But those are the themes I tried to address. So why don't yeah. you rattle off for folks, what, what were the games that you, uh, that you did talk about? The, the ten games in the series were Seven Cities of Gold, the original uh, Dan Button classic from 1984, uh, the original Railroad Tycoon, uh, Populous, Merchant Prince Machiavelli, one of the great uh, underappreciated strategy games from the early 90s, from QQP and then Microprose at the Machiavelli, the Imperialism series from Frog City and SSI, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, uh, the Combat Mission games, Europa Universalis series, The Sims, and Rise of Nations. And like I said, I'm just waiting for Brian Reynolds' uh, comments on that. Those are the ten games, and those are the themes I wanted to address. And they're all very different games. Um, they have different, they have very different mechanics from each other, very different engines. Most of them are from different developers. I have uh, two Sid Meier games in there, Railroad Tycoon and Gettysburg, but they're both so different from each other. They might as well have been made from different designers, uh, especially since Railroad Tycoon had a huge Bruce Shelley influence. Now, if you had included Alpha Centauri, uh, what sort of things would uh, would that have brought up for you? If I'd done Alpha Centauri, it would have been uh, Map as a Living World. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reflection and, and the, the color, the use of color to reflect so many different things. Not just color as terrain, but color as life, color as threat. Color as what it was the last thing? Threat. 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 Color as threat. Yes. Like what's paint on the threat board? The pink pink fungus. Pink, yes. And right. also the difficulties that presented for a lot of gamers because it looked terrible. 
You got and also, I believe, didn't they have to issue some special colorblind patch? I have a friend who's colorblind, really? and this is constantly lost on me. But yeah, so there were apparently something, I think there was something distinct to the color scheme in Alpha Centauri that made it particularly problematic for people who are colorblind. Uh, I don't know if it was the pink fungus, or if it was just something that happens to all games, and they were just conscientious about it. Well, the pink and the green, I mean, those are the red and green are the big colors there. Um, and you get the, the green river tiles, green and blue, and you have a pink tile right between it, and I can see that causing some trouble. Right. For colorblind people. Um, and uh, now, I don't recall if you touched on this some, Troy, but I get some of that. Did you you mention the first civilization? Was that sort of, or did you go into the fourth one? Uh, uh, I, did, I didn't do anything on civilization. Civilization at all. Okay, well, because that, that, uh, that was, I think, sort of uh, touched on a little bit. Like, Civilization Four did a good job with this sort of living map uh, right. playing up from Civilization, where as you're playing the game you start with just sort of a, a natural order of things and you eventually sort of tame it and break it down into mines and chop down forests and, and lay railroads. Uh, not to the degree, I mean, it didn't have the sci-fi theming of Alpha Centauri, but I've always liked the map as a personality. Mm-hmm. And also gameplay stuff with all the with the unique resources. Uh, I thought Civilization IV did a very good job of sort of following up on the, the, the initial promise of Alpha Centauri as a sort of a living map. Yeah, I mean, Civ Four really underlines a map as, as opportunity. I mean, it's kind of in the imperialism uh, scheme of things, where right. you see what's out there, and you have to decide if you want to risk going to grab it or not, uh, especially with special resources, or can I get all of, one of my favorite things, trying to get all of the dye that I can in one city. Right, right, yeah, the positioning of your city, yep. yep. And then try to found a religion in that city. And it will just churn out as much gold as I can. I'm gonna, you know, throw the Wall Street in there, and you'll never be starving for money again, especially if you're a financial sieve. Um, but one thing Civilization I Four would always put visual rep- representations for each of these things. Yeah, like there was a little Wall Street graphic, and it would it would all live and exist on the map. Like it was all physically there. It was like sort of looking at a map of your empire and getting a little picture of your Wall Street and all of your dye plantations. Uh, like all of that was somehow manifested on the map. Well, if that were the ca- if that's the case, then why did the map just seem so dead? It wasn't. It had little things moving around and little oh, animated dudes. Yeah. Now, why I do you say really, dead, Bruce? I, it didn't really. I mean, it didn't really do much for me. I just felt that that map. I mean, it was so. I just felt the map was really homogenous, and I didn't really get a sense of place out of that map, really at all. Um, no, wait. So you you mean Civ Four, not Alpha Centauri? No, Civ Four. We're talking about Civ Four, correct? Right. right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just felt like everything was too. I mean, everything was too. Um, it repeated itself to the point where it all seemed like just cloned stuff. I mean, it was all seemed like kind of a ripoff. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I guess I could explain it if I thought about it for a really, really long time, and then this podcast took three hours. But um, I just felt like. When you get to that level of sort of, you know, really cool representation, you actually lose a lot, and especially if it all looks the same. Um, I think a much, much better choice, and it started, I mean, not, and not to criticize Troy, Troy's choices, because in fact he didn't cover civilization at all, so good job on that, Troy. But um, I thought a much better choice, and, and it, totally in, the, in a different direction stylistically, would have been uh, the Heroes of Might and Magic games, specifically two, um, but three also. Uh, and four, we don't want to talk about, and five, eh. So, 
Um, I really liked uh, two and three's maps. Um, Troy, are you the are you the heroes of might and magic hater around here? That's me, I think. Yeah, that's it might you. be Troy as well. Uh oh. Oh jeez. Well, this no, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hater. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the Heroes of Might and Magic series, but I'm not a, certainly not a hater. Mm-hmm. So, what okay. is it you well, liked about the Heroes of Might and Magic two and three maps? Well, I just, I mean, I liked a that they were kind of cartoony, but they were really cute, which is a terrible thing to have in video games unless you're, you know, a JRPG. So, uh, you have that there, and um, but for some reason, I just thought it it created a much better sense of place than. Uh, then Sephora, I mean, you had, you know, scary desert land and cold North Pole, Arctic land, and, you know, uh, lush jungle land, but it was all done, and you, you kind of, they, they were all very sort of distinct areas to the map, which you had to reach through, you know, these sort of convoluted path that sometimes you took, uh, you had to take teleport, uh, use tele- little teleport, towers or whatever um and it sort of i mean the map you really kind of knew where every place was and uh you sort of had a sense of how the whole map was arranged um much more so than i think in 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 uh sephora where i sort of get lost in this sort of in the sameness of everything after a while um and on and that's really kind of one of my sort of big criteria for if I if I like the way uh, a map represents its game space which is that you have it has to create an interesting place that I can orient myself in and um, that's actually for me why Sid Meier's Gettysburg which is number six on your list uh, it fails because uh, partly because of the way the game was designed you can't play the whole battle of Gettysburg but I never feel like I'm in Gettysburg I just feel I'm in these random little places where you know these scenarios take place, and I never really get a sense of the battlefield or anything. Uh, and I'm pretty familiar with the Gettysburg battlefield too. So, um, it, you know, the the, the I, I like to actually hear. I mean, I read your piece about Sid Meier's Gettysburg, uh, which I found interesting. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, and why you like that, because I, I'm I'm I'd be much more on board with. Uh, Civ- I mean, I, actually, I would disagree with both of them, kind of. If you were to play Civ Four on there, but Sid Meier's Gettysburg, I kind of disagree with also. Let me—I I, want to hear more about Gettysburg because that's sort of the game I know least about. But I just wanted to respond a little bit to what I think Bruce might be getting at. Comparing like Heroes of Might and Magic to Civ Four, in a way, is sort of comparing the fantasy worlds of—and and I get ready for what might be a bad analogy—comparing the fantasy worlds of Baldur's Gate to Diablo. Oh, that's such that, a bad analogy. I know. I knew you were going to say that, so therefore I have to explain briefly. Uh, the, it's the difference between scripting and uh, something that, that's hand-built. Uh, the Heroes of Might and Magic maps had the advantage of being hand-built. A guy sat down and he built them the same way that you or I might draw a dungeon if we're making a scenario in Dungeons and Dragons. You know, you sit down with a piece of paper and you put this here and that there, and here's the desert of terrible impassable things, and here's the, the swamp of of dark, smelly gas, and over here is the elven kingdom of lots of jewels. You know, and you right. put that stuff down, uh-huh. and it's handmade, and yes, it feels like a place. And but, right. but part of what's awesome for me, and I think that Troy would agree with, if I may speak for you, Troy, and, uh, is, is that the Civ Four maps evolve naturally, according to what you do. You sort of build them. You don't have this guy who builds them for you, and you play around in someone else's land. You get a script, you get a, this sort of 
untamed area, and then it evolves over time. And that's the living world sense that I think Troy would have brought up with Alpha Centauri that I also get from uh, Civ Four. Um, yeah. And so I can see somebody sort of not somebody preferring the intricacy you get with a hand-built map. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. Also, there are some scripts in Civ Four, and here's why I'm looking forward to reading your comments on Rise of Nations, Troy, because this is something that Rise of Nations and Age of Mythology before it and Age Three does very well is map scripts, yes. where it's a randomized map, but you pick parameters, and these parameters give the map to to my mind perfect compromise between Bruce what you're talking about with this the sort of hand built stuff and the personality you get with a hero's map and the the more sort of dynamic emergent properties that come with like a civ 4 map and so these map scripts like I think of age of mythology you know that the the mediterranean map in age of mythology it's random every time, but you're, you're always going to get the ocean in the middle, and you're always going to go around the edges. So you always have the decision, do I go for a navy to punch through the middle, or do I work my way around both of the edges? Do I work, work my way around one edge? Or the Oasis map, for instance, where all the wood is in the middle. You know, you got to get in there. And, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, Rise of Nations had this awesome, I think it was called British Isles. So the, the, the gimmick on this map, which gives it a lot of that sort of scripting personality, is that all the oil is in the water. So by the time you hit the industrial age and have to start making oil, you need to have some, some sort of provision in place for, uh, challenging, for, for establishing naval supremacy. Uh, you have to get out into the water. Um, so this, so scripts, I think, is, is something that uh, I look forward to reading about when you write about Rise of Nations, Troy, but I think it addresses some of that that you're talking about, Bruce. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that that's a really good point, um, and I will say that um, I definitely I prefer the hand-drawn kind of map thing, and of course, you know, that takes away the uh, the map as, you know, discovery aspect after you play it the first time, um, or if you play it more than once every ten years, where you, you know, kind of forget what the map was all about. But uh, I also like the way that, you know, and it's part of the gameplay mechanic, is that in Heroes of, of Might and Magic 2 and 3, um, the sort of the things on the map, especially like the monsters, uh, really lend the... They, they're an added tool that the map designers can use to um, to really give the map personality, and you don't really get that in uh, in a lot of the other... Well, in, in Civ 4, you don't get it. You do get it, interestingly, in the Imperialism games, uh, through the use of, well, for, specifically in Imperialism 2, with the use of the, um, the uh, you know, indigenous uh, nations in, uh, on the, in the New World, uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, this is the, um, you know, you get the Aztecs or you get the, you know, the Seminoles or whatever, um, and, and that them being in certain places and guarding certain types of, of treasures, just like the monsters guard certain types of treasures in... in um, in uh, the Heroes of the Magic series, kind of give, give the map a lot more personality than just the um, than the than the Civ Four. You know, no matter whether the scripted or, or not maps do. So, um, so I'm I mean I'm just partial to that kind of gameplay, I guess, and then, sure. therefore I'm partial to that kind of map. You, you know what that makes me think? Ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Finish. I'm, I'm, I was going to throw, throw, throw that. That makes me think, though, of and, and Troy. Do you, like, I don't know. You you know Civ Four probably as well as any of us, Troy. Do you right. know which map script is uh, the Terra map script in Civ Four? Does that ring any bells? Yeah, Terra is the uh, 
That's the one with the the new world. Yep, and I think thing. it does. And it's it's the, it's a great example of this sort of compromise. You know, it basically is like. The guys who made Civ Four, I can see them playing Imperialism and thinking, "Oh, these are great gameplay mechanics. How can we do this with Civ Four? And they do it with this Terra map script. Where it's and one, what that does, it's all, all the country, all the powers are crammed in, in, in an old world continent. So maybe mm-hmm. you get three or four cities. If you want to expand, there's a whole lot of resources across the ocean. So it's a rush to get to astronomy. Is what it is. Exactly to to be able to cross the ocean tiles. And then uh, trying to deal with the costs, because once you get there and you set up a new colony, it's really expensive. Cause it's and not only that, but what's going on the whole time while you've been developing astronomy? The barbarians over there are founding their own cities. You know, you'll get over there and you'll find flourishing, not, not flourishing as much as the old world, but you'll find barbarian towns and, and empires. And sometimes I think they can even build wonders of the world. Uh, so, I've never seen a wonder of the world. I'm not saying it's not the case, but I've never actually seen one. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty. But anyway, they can certainly build big cities. Uh, so you can get over there and find the equivalent of you know the Aztecs or, or something. Uh, so anyway, I just that that was just a Bruce. You're talking about imperialism. Just made me think of that Terra map script, which I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I never. I don't have any experience with it because I haven't played Civ. I played any game, but especially Civ Four in quite a while. So. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's it. That's that's a that's a great point. It's interesting how how the map designers are always, uh, um, you know, you you get these different. They they clearly recognize these gameplay elements and they want to you know try to get them into their uh, their own game, even though the the, the gameplay mechanic doesn't particularly favor it. But I, I literally, Troy, I'd really love to hear more about your your Gettysburg uh, type, uh, your, your choice of Gettysburg because that's the one. That's the one. I mean, except for the Sims, which I just makes me in, insane. Um, that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I just but don't get started gonna, here because we're, gonna we're have, going like, to we're going things. to have an entire show on The Sims. Oh my right. god! Yeah, That's exactly. Right. That's the one where I'll be out of town. Um, so, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I get what you say is it not creating necessarily a great sense of place for the battlefield because at any one time you're generally only dealing with a small part of it uh, because of the decision to have you focus on smaller engagements instead of a larger battle. But what I thought it did well and why I put it in there is I thought it did a very good job of capturing the importance of uh, localized terrain for a commander, of understanding where you're at, where the threat is coming from. And I thought that's what the map did really well, by communicating at a very simple level uh, through very simple representation and great small encounters and a wonderful battle engine. Um, if not necessarily what Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is like, what being a field commander in 19th century America is like. And I think it helps that it uses the Gettysburg terminology, that it uses it uses the actual battlefield, whether you appreciate it or not, and it uses Seminary Ridge, and it uses all of these landmarks of American military history so that it has that, that callback uh, for the war gamer, that you are fighting on this land whether you feel like you're fighting there or not. And that's those are the two big things that I drew from it. I think that, that I think really that that you have to really kind of hand it to the to the gameplay uh, the the battle engine rather than the I mean the, you can you get that from uh, and you can get that from any two D representation of the uh, of the battlefield I think with a game that you know that rewards actually using terrain I think it's I think the thing that does that works there is not so much the map as the real time engine and the the representation of the battle sort of giving you immediate feedback about wow you know being on top of this hill really helps 
and uh, you know trying to charge through you know charge uh, you know through this field and over these uh, obstacles really sucks. So um, I mean, I guess that the, the the map does have something to do with that. I, 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 I think I think that the way, that the map is integral for that. Cause I think that the way that they've because you could, there are so many war games where terrain is uh, obviously an advantage, but either it's not displayed clearly. Or it's confusing, or it's just a murky color, or the and the effects aren't very obvious. You don't see the guys climbing over the fence, and you might say that's just a gameplay thing or a graphics thing, but it's actually it's also a map thing because you see the fence and you know your guys are going to be slow going over there, and it's represented so perfectly and so beautifully um, with the forests and the streams. The situational awareness you get in uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, I think, is Better than pretty much any Civil War game uh, ever made, except for maybe With the Mad the Minute take, guys. Maybe that's it. Maybe the Take Command games uh, from the Mad Minute people are the only real competitors, I think, uh, in that arena. Mm-hmm. Troy, I seem to recall in your combat mission write-up, you you talked to I think it was Charles Moylan himself, wasn't it? Uh, no, it uh, was uh, Steve. Steve Grandma. Steve Grandma. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, but but he and he talked about why what they got out of doing a 3D engine for their war game, and it sounds like Sid Meier's Gettysburg gets a lot of the same benefit from being a, a sort of a 3D representation of the battlefield. Right. So didn't it sort of, in a way, trump what they were doing with Combat Mission? Well, Combat Mission trump so much as uh, what was it? It just sort of came before what they were doing with with Combat Mission. That's interesting. I, mean, I hadn't even thought of that comp- of that uh, comparison. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a good point. I mean, I don't know that. Uh, I mean, they're they're three D, but they're three D in such very different ways because yeah. Combat Mission is a is really a squad level tight, yeah, compressed right, right. game. Um, and the three D there is, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time focusing on the three D and the importance of it for the the, the buildings. And I th- think that uh, your Tom versus Bruce game would have been much more fun if you had actually linked to some of the. Some of the images actually showed a tank blowing up. Um, I'm sure we sent in awesome screenshots and they just didn't use them. Green. <sighs> That's terrible. Well, this is the on the this is on the one up page. They probably just grabbed the most random screenshots. Actually, yeah, no, it's totally it, true, it, it, Troy. We yeah. yeah, we we sent in. We would take screenshots, send them in to the print magazine. I don't think any of those carried over to the website. They, yeah, they just we threw have, up like our shots. Yeah. We have we have actually I have that issue of uh, of uh, of uh, computer gaming world and actually there were, we had some pretty dramatic screenshots of like there was one I remember that game really well actually Tom uh, was uh, Tom ambushed me as I had a whole bunch of uh, you know Panzer Grenadiers uh, um, debarking from a uh, from a half track and I think we got a pretty good screenshot of it it was it was pretty um, pretty neat and of course I wish. Now that um, you know, so much later, we could actually have uh, we it wasn't we weren't able to do it at the time, but we could have posted uh, you know replay files of certain turns. Right. Where, uh, yeah, but you know, hey, oh, that's, well, that's one thing I did not get a chance to do in the series, and it's mostly it's because it's you know it's something I'm not that interested in, but it's very common, and that is real time strategy games that have fixed maps. Now, when I interviewed Bruce Shelley last year, we talked about random versus fixed maps. He said, well, it, it's chess versus poker. They both take very different skills, but they're both <laughs> games. You know, the, the, the board's fixed, or you have uh, imperfect information, and that's the big difference. Um, but I, So I didn't do any of the Command and Conquer games or the Dawn of War games that have fixed maps, because I just can't build up a whole lot of love for them. 
Is something wrong with me? Am I broken? It really does take away that. There's this awesome sense. Every time I sit down to start a real-time strategy game, you know, the, you join the lobby, whatever, the game fires up, you're in that first moment where you're either, like, sending out a scout or building up peons, you know, they're, they're setting out on, on a branch on a tech tree, and the game could go anywhere. There's this wonderful sense of anything could happen. And when you have a fixed map, you lose a lot of that because you know exactly where everything is, exactly where the other guy started. So that's this one sense of possibility that's removed from the equation. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I completely understand. Yeah, but there's another element to that, which is, and I, I, I haven't, to, the game that actually I've played, the real-time strategy game that I've played most recently, and when I say recently, I'm going to say like in the past, I don't know, six months, is um, Dawn of War Soulstorm. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I actually play that, I've played that multiple times, uh, co-op and also against a couple friend, different friends of mine. Um, now, I don't know if you're and, aware, Bruce, there, there's yeah. been a new Dawn of War since then. You're playing an old game. I don't know if you're aware. I just wanted to let you know. Go ahead. There's a, there's a sequel to Soulstorm. It's like Soulstorm Two. Similar. Soulstorm the sequel. Okay. It's along those lines. Anyway. All right. Um, anyway, well, you're playing that, an old game. Go ahead. I hope that they they you know advance the story because I'm really interested to, in what happened to the Sisters of Battle. But um, um, the uh, there's this one map. I can't remember what it's called. And I should have looked it up. I didn't really even think to do it. Um, which has, it's kind of this long map, uh, it's, I think it's a 2v2 map, and, uh, you know, somehow, um, whenever we played, we would start at, uh, at the same end, and it had, uh, water on one side, and then there were these couple, uh, resource points that were sort of accessible up this little hill on the left, and there was, a there was a sort of a central area that all, you always fought over, uh, and if you if you move to the right, you would go off into this water area. Um, and I got to know that map really well. And while I knew exactly how the map was laid out, I always was thinking, oh, you know, look, he's coming up this thing, or I've got to watch out for, you know, that. Uh, I can I can put a I can put a, a base and a turret right here, and really kind of keep him off of off of these different uh, resource nodes. So and and that's I think if you play these certain real time strategy maps, you know really over and over and over you kind of get attached to them and, and they you, they get a lot more they get a lot more personality than they would have otherwise yeah it's like the heroes of might and magic 2 thing again yep i agree good point but the heroes of might and magic 2 maps have a personality from the from the very beginning the first time you play that map it's just i i think it's different i think those 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 maps are just really cool from the get go so well, let's troy you talked a bit about uh europa universalis uh Three, actually, I think the whole series, right. uh, and there's that sense that game also loses that sense of exploration, like in terms of like when the game begins, you know what's out there already, right? Uh, you kind of know the map, and so I wonder if some people get from EU, from the EU games, what Bruce is talking about, where you play a map over and over again, and you learn it, and there's a new level of strategy to it. Well, that uh-huh. was the whole ch- chess thing that Bruce Shelley uh, was referring yeah. to. That you know, you get. You, you learn where everything is, and it's about, okay, how do I make this map work for me? I know where the uh, resource nodes are. I know where the, if I think of Command and Conquer 3, I know where the Tiberium's coming out of the ground. I know where I have to send my engineers. So how soon do I get the first engineers out? Where should I set up my snipers to protect him or her? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming there are female engineers. Um, so... 
that's what Shelley's getting at, and I think you're right. That there's some of that in Europa Universalis, the idea that how quickly can I get to the new world and start exploiting it for the gold? Now, the big thing in Europa Universalis, especially in 2 and 3, is that because they've made the non-European powers so much, so much more active than they were in the first uh in the first game, you're never quite sure what the map's going to look like when you get there. You know where uh, you know where Asia is, and you know where the Indies are, uh, but you don't know what kind of superpower you're going to run into when you finally show up. I mean, will someone have united India? Uh, will uh, all the trade ports of the spices be under one person's thumb? How big's China going to get? So there's some variation in there, and that's the, that's the exploration you're going to get to. It's the same as, to some extent, as you know, Bruce waiting for his friend to, will he get to that place before I do? Will he get mm-hmm. to those resources? Yeah, and well, and adds a go ahead, Bruce. I I think that for, part of, for that. For me, part of that game is just learning what all the goofy provinces are that I've never heard of, or you know, really actually looking at a map of India carefully, which I don't think I've you know only done a handful of times. Or um, you know, the, the interesting thing, uh, a great game, and I, I hate to bring board games into this because I know that it's everybody was going to go to sleep. Um, there was a really cool game called Source of the Nile where it had that same kind of thing that Troy was just talking about, where you sort of knew the map, but you sort of saw how everything was going to come out. You uh, you dr- actually drew on the map. Uh, you sort of uh, revealed... Um, the, it, was a ra- it was a random generation of the, of the map of Africa. Uh, so you had the same kind of um, a discovery of the map, but also there was, uh, you know, you actually knew... Uh, where you were, and uh, you had some sort of historical uh, orientation. It's, it's a it's a pretty cool game. Um, I don't know how it holds up now. I haven't played it probably in twenty years, but um, it's 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 something that you know map designers um, have been obviously thinking about for you know twenty years or more more than that since that game came out in like nineteen I can't remember like I think it was a nineteen seventies game. Is it like a Seven Cities of Gold kind of vibe? Mm, sort of. A little bit. Not, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's that's fair. Gosh, now you're making me like sort of compare two games I haven't played in, <laughs> in, in like 20 years against each other in my head. But, but it's like uh, an exploration. It's not like an empire building thing. It's no, like no, no. It's very much, it's a very much an exploration sort of resource uh, exploitation game where you got points for, for, for doing various things too. In, in, interacting with the map. That would be... Wow, I, I have to look that game up. That's, uh, uh, there will be a link to this at the bottom of this podcast. There certainly <laughs> will. I want to look for it because one game I thought about uh, digging up, but I've never actually played it, so I couldn't comment on it, was Heart of Africa, which is another one of Dan Bunton's games. Heart of Africa, yeah. Uh, gosh, I haven't even heard of that, Troy. Yeah, I haven't. That's a good one there. Uh, what is it? It is the same idea. You are, ex- if I'm thinking of the right game, uh, you are exploring Africa. <laughs> Is it a precursor uh, to Seven Cities? I think it comes after Seven Cities. Wow, awesome. And uh, it's something I know very little about. I've read very little about it. Um, but I've heard only good things. It's, it says it's an unofficial sequel to uh, Seven Cities of Gold, released in 1985. Is it maybe the thing you were talking about, Troy, where they added in like colonization and, and quests? No, they did you that. mentioned that in the Seven Cities. No, they uh, they did that in the uh, in the Seven Cities Collector's Edition. 
Now, here's the Wikipedia has a nice long entry for Heart of Africa. It's an adventure game, they call it. You have to make mustaches out of cat fur, like that? Uh, no, you interact with natives. You can get the delirious. Oh, you get, there's a whip and a shovel and a rope. That's, oh my gosh, yeah. And you have to, like, mix the whip with the shovel to make a bola, I bet. Exactly. Uh, but it had, it had a similar uh, look. Um, same idea of exploration, trying to find, you know, lost treasures and the like. And I thought, you know, it would have been, you know, an interesting, not typical game to do, you know, if I wanted to be contrarian. But then I thought, well, Seven Seasons of Gold, I've played that, I know it. Um, Bruce wrote a great essay on it a few years ago that I could steal some thoughts from, so I did. So I went with that instead. But that's uh, another one of these great games from the past that, uh, I mean, geez, imagine what Button could have done with the, today's technology. I wonder, I, actually, I think that was one of my comments in that in that article that I wrote, that I wonder how good that game would actually be now. I think there's a certain, I think there's a certain synergy and, and a certain... Uh, um, confluence of uh, design elements that's possible uh, when you're when you're limited by you know your by the technology and the players aren't expecting anything beyond that I mean obviously you could yeah. make a seven season right now and all the players would say oh this sucks it doesn't have this and that and the other thing when the players aren't aren't doing that when they're just willing to get take whatever they get um, I think that there are certain things about that game that uh, really work perfectly given the technological limitations that don't work now. Um, Source of the Nile, actually, I just found it in 1979. So, yeah, 30 wow. years ago um, wow. it came out. And that was actually the Avalon Hill version, I think. I think there was a uh, pre-Avalon Hill version uh, before that since many of those uh, games were Avalon Hill buying other games and republishing them. So I'm trying to think of games that, that sort of appeal to that sense that certainly Seven Cities created. Uh, Troy mentioned this in Merchant Prince a little bit, where you've got the sepia-toned map of Terra Incognito. Am I saying that? Incognito. Terra Incognito, that's fine. You can have gender agreement, Tom. I, th- I hope you understand. Uh, I don't know. This, this is a 21st century, Bruce. We allow oh, yeah. So that, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of that's racist or whatever it is. <laughs> But the, so what I think of in terms of appealing to that sort of going out into Terra Incognita and discovering what's there and uh, the the contemporary counterparts to that, it, two games sort of come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of Age of Empires 3. When a game first starts, you've got the map out there and you've got a little explorer dude and he can run around and discover little treasures. And the treasures are all defended by guardians who you have to fight. Sometimes you'll have to come back with a bigger army. And in each treasure is this cool little animated uh, thing on the map, whether it's like a worker who's tied to a tree or an Indian scout who's been treed by bears or a bunch of outlaws guarding a shack full of treasure. There's this sense that, okay, here's the map, and we're going to pepper it with these little vignettes. And your explorer dude is going to run around and, and pick them up. And the, the really powerful ones, maybe later in the game, if you've got time between fighting a battle and building your base, maybe later you can come back and get those. Uh, but that's sort of like that, that, that sort of appeals to that sense of going out into Terra Incognita and discovering cool stuff. Uh, yeah. The other one that comes to mind is uh, Civilization Revolutions. Actually, is it just one revolution? I forget how many revolutions are in that. It might just be singular. Uh, there are artifacts on the map that are like, uh, and I think one of them might even be the Seven Cities of Gold. 
uh, but there's like an Atlantis. Uh, there, there's a, I think a Masonic temple or something. And if you go, it encourages you to go out and scout in the same way that the Explorer does in Age of Empires 3. And you go out, and if you discover one of these, you get some global bonus for the rest of the game. Uh, so both of those come to mind when I think of what, what Seven Cities of Gold and the Exploration and Merchant Prince. Now, I want to say that the, the Age of Empires 3, uh, which you were talking about, I don't really... I mean, I get no sense of those maps whatsoever. And that was another thing in the the the, um, the essay I wrote about uh, Seven Cities of Gold and Age of Empires 3. Is that the, I, I get nothing out of those Age of Empires 3 maps. And that is not in, in any way to say that they're bad maps. Um, it's just that the way that the games play and the way those real-time strategy games play is that I don't really... Um, I don't really, I can't get a sense of the map because I'm too con- too focused on exactly what you were saying. Is that these little, you know, some guys up a tree, right? I mean, <laughs> that guy's up the tree. I go click on the thing, get the get the get the reward, but I never really have any idea. I mean, if you if you ask me five minutes later, where was that guy in a tree? I would have no idea where he was because I'm 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 forced to focus on these little micro elements of the map, and I never get a sense of the of the of the map itself. I think what so, you want is backstory about why the guy is up in the tree. Well, I mean, that would be nice. I mean, if they could pause and then I would have to, you know, if I could <laughs> click to get one line of dialogue at a time and then, you know, there would be like cartoon characters. I mean, that would, that would help me a lot. So, yeah, you're right. That's another scripting, though, thing. That's a scripting thing about, like, they, Age of Empires 3 had these great map scripts also uh, that uh, it would sort I, of... I, I don't think it's coincidence that Asian Dynasty some some of the best map scripts, and it was all it was made by yeah. big teams. Yeah, they, had, they added like the naval combat, the naval treasures, which was such a such a like a, a no duh moment. Like, why didn't Ensemble think of that? Is they that, put, that one map was it the Honshu map where the trade route is on a separate island? Yes, 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 and you which, had to, exactly which is terrible in single player because the AI never uses it, but in multiplayer, uh, it's, you get a lot of combat over that little spot but even ensemble did some great things like if i recall wasn't there a there was like a pilgrim map or something where you start out with a bunch of villagers and turkeys as your food supply and there's a table full of food and it was basically a map to just front load you with food and workers uh and they called it i don't know mayflower pilgrim something like that uh and they had these great texas maps that were all mesas and the food was all uh buffaloes you know which there weren't many of them but each buffalo was really fat and had a lot of meat on him uh, and then they would have the, the Arctic maps where well, the, the food the, was the, scarce. I think it's the Yukon map, which is one of my yeah, favorites, yeah, yeah. which has all these treasures on one far side. Yeah, exactly. And there's the valley in the middle. Is that is that the one that had the, the sort of fertile valley in the middle? I could no. Be- I might be thinking of a different map, but it's one with it's an Arctic map, and there is I'm pretty sure it's the Yukon map, but I'm gonna have to look this up. No, I know what you're talking about, and then it's very yeah, top. That's where all the treasures are. It's the very top. There's treasures, and there's super guardians, and there's this river you have to cross to get there. Yep, yep. That's because the river runs through it. You're right, exactly. <laughs> um, so there, there, there are some wonderful maps. Brad Pitt movies, Bruce. Now, there were some wonderful map scripts, and I wonder, why do some developers choose the random maps in the scripts instead of, and others choose the fixed maps and fixed world. I mean, we had a great time with that Argus map, but I never got a sense for the map because I was too busy kicking your asses. Uh, but 
Oh, oh totally a little trash talking. In our dawn yeah, of you see In our dawn of and he's like all, you know, all in your face and stuff. I wow, never for a Canadian I, that was extreme. Yeah, that was just like way sure? over You're the line. Gonna stand for that? Tom, I mean, how often do I beat you at anything? <laughs> Troy, you're just you've gone mad with power. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the Dawn of War 2 has some very, very nice maps. Um, Tatooine and Dagobah. Very well designed. Lots of great placements of um, of, of cover, of, uh, well, not resource nodes, I guess the electric power nodes. Even the campaign has some really nice maps in it. Uh, why do some developers, you think, make the push for the random scripts and others uh, for the fixed maps? Well, it's got to be the, the extra work that it takes. I mean, it can't be easy. I mean, that's like a whole other thing that a programmer or two has to work on for weeks on end if you have some random map script, I would think. Are you saying uh, Relic's afraid of work? <laughs> They're too busy uh, making the awesome AI for their games to do map scripts. Well, clearly map scripts, like, uh, I, I just want to, uh, one of the greatest games uh, ever made, Dominions uh, oh. 1, 2, and 3, has great, just wonderful maps. Yes. Um, and I, I want to um, say that the great, you can basically use anything as a Dominions 3 map, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, the You have the ability to basically draw anything and make a map out of it. But the maps that are provided in the game are just, or actually in, in um, especially in, in 2, uh, were just wonderful. And also uh, uh, Jason Lutz, uh, who... Um, uh, is a, a graphic novel artist and uh, also a. Um, uh, well, he's an artist and, and uh, he he uh, is also a big gamer and a board gamer, so that means he's very smart. Um, he uh, provided some maps for Dominion Three, which are just beautiful, and some of them are so. Well, there's one that's uh, designed for um, for you know specific races to start in specific places, and it's a, it's just a great. Uh, sort of interpretation of the game world and its sort of backstory. Um, but one of the things that in Dominions 3, one of the big things, uh, one of the, the most uh, sought-after uh, features that the fan base requested was random maps. And uh, so they obliged, and there's a, uh, there's a random map generator. Um, and a lot of people use it, and I hate it because... Mm-hmm. The maps are so, there are certain maps that are so, I, I just get so attached to. Um, there's the Orania map, which is this, this, this great sort of, um, uh, large map for multiple nations. There's a, there's, there's a smaller map, um, called, gosh, I can't remember what it's called, but, uh, Tom and I used it for, um, for our very first, uh, Dominions based, uh, Tom versus Bruce, um, which is sort of an island, uh, um, but we, we, and you can go, obviously go in the water. Oh, gosh, I, I'm blanking on the name. I should have looked that up in my research uh, today. But um, there's so many, th- those maps are so great, the, the, the individually uh, hand-drawn maps. And um, uh, I think that the, the, the random maps in Dominions 3 really pale in comparison to mm. uh, the ones that are provided. And that's, I think, just an example of how hard it can be to do a randomized map script. Uh, you know the Dominions guys. It's like three dudes, uh, right? So two, yeah, so really I, two, really two guys that are really doing it. Yeah, and only one that's a, there's one that's a programmer and one that's the artist, um, and so they sort of had to collaborate. And the the, the random maps just don't look very good. I mean, I, and that's not. I don't mean to offend uh, them 
the you know they they did it's fun they're functional and people use them and enjoy them so that's great um i just don't think they 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 come anywhere close to the uh the, the provided maps and a, a map done by a really good artist like uh like jason uh, or, or you know um uh johan the the dominion's three artist uh, dominion's two, the artist on the Dominions team, you know, when he does a map, uh, they're great also. So I, I don't, uh, I don't think it's it's really um, there's a really comparison. But it's so hard to do a, a, a random map that that uh, that even comes close. You know. Now, how does it work that you can? Can't you just take any JPEG and turn it into a map in Dominions? Isn't it? Isn't that what you're talking yes. about? Like it has support. And how does yes. that work? Like, does it just randomly draw borders or? Well, the 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 great thing about Dominions is that, or a great thing about the great thing about Dominions for those purposes is that there really there are no such things as borders. Game and the map doesn't doesn't recognize borders. Um, all the map recognizes is provinces, or, you know, spaces, and the uh, uh, whether a province is connected to another province. So the map never has to check whether, you know, a, what border is, uh, you know, where, where the pixels are exactly. All it decides is whether, a, uh, whether one province is connected to another province or not and whether one province is a, uh, you know, what kind of terrain it has. So you can take a map of anything. I mean, you could take a, a you know, a map that's, a, you know, a photo of uh, LeBron James and, you know, have his arm be one province that's, you know, connected to his chest, and then, you know, his pelvis would be connected to each leg or something, right? I mean, it just, that it's that kind of, of dynamic, and then you could assign a terrain to each of the, to any body part, and that would be it. Uh, you wouldn't have to decide, you know, how long the border is or what type of border it is. Um, so, yeah, and, and the editing is actually very simple, uh, just, it's a little time-consuming, but, uh, uh, anybody can do it if they just you know, put enough time into it. That's weird and crazy. Yeah, I could well, play so like I could take a picture of Eliza Dushku and turn her into a Dominion's Three map. Uh, it depends what kind of picture. Okay. You, you, you could, but you wouldn't play it very convincingly. <laughs> wow, that was mean. That was really mean. Yeah. You're going to get Dollhouse canceled. I'll have you know. I love Dollhouse. Hate Dushku. What about vampires? Uh, let's, can we talk about TV shows on this? If they're strategy game TV shows. Oh, yes. <laughs> only, only History Channel TV shows. Uh, one aspect of maps that I wanted to bring up that came to mind, and, and Bruce will understand this particularly well. Uh, first of all, I'm going to sort of lead in. Okay, you guys listen to this. Did you hear that? That's me hitting a map against the microphone. A physical map. And one Is it a rolled-up cloth map that you got in a role-playing game? N- no, no. It's an actual paper map of a place that you and I have been to, Bruce. Really? And yes. Azeroth. No, an actual real-world place. I don't think there's a historical Azeroth. I think that's fake. I'm not sure, but I'm on to those Blizzard guys. So here's one thing about maps that I really dig, and I don't have much real-world experience with. I don't... I'm not an outdoorsy guy. I've, the only camping I've done is in, you know, Counter Strike, whatever. Uh, uh-huh. We, we, thank you. Uh, I I went to Joshua Tree, this sort of desert out here in uh, Southern California. Oh yeah, that's right. We went there yeah. with Bruce and a couple of other friends. And there's hiking trails around there, and you just drive out and you camp out for the night, whatever. Uh, and then you just hike for the day. 
So one of the first things we did was Bruce bought a really detailed map of the area. And Bruce is into like, uh, you know, mountain climbing and whatnot where, and he even goes on mountains where they don't put up signs that tell you where to hike. Like Bruce knows that kind of stuff. So we had this really detailed map. We're out in this desert and we follow a path for a while and eventually decide we want to see some things off of the path and we wander around. And every now and then we stop, we unfold this map and I learned how to say something that I'm going to try right now. Bruce, you tell me if I did it, if I do it right. Every now and then we stop, unfold the map and take topo. <laughs> but it's like where you're looking at the topography on the map and you're relating it to the real world. And there's this great sense of this map is this sort of cipher or this key to this unknown terrain around you and this real place. And there's this sense of, okay, I look at the map, I look at that peak over there, I look at the incline of this hill over here, and I sort of fix my position. Uh, and in an age of GPS and games that you play where you're just following a carrot that's tied to uh, your HUD, uh, that's that was this awesome sensation I got from this map that I rarely get in, in video games or in, in, in any kind of uh, game uh, where you relate a map to a real world. Uh, so I still have that map of us, where we went in Joshua Tree. Hmm. Um, now, do you this, remember what happened with that map? I remember what happened with that map. I remember what happened is that we ended up getting so lost Mm-hmm. That if yep. it hadn't been for my GPS little handheld tracking unit, we would have spent the night in the desert. That's what I remember. We I, we strayed you, so far afield from the path. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it, well, it was interesting because you know we basically had uh, we had two sort of landmarks or, that we were using, and we sort of we decided that one was a lot closer or a lot. Uh, a lot further away from us than it really. I, and I have is it, those. This is uh, a little while ago, so I, I'm kind of forgetting. But yeah, we kind of got a little bit. Um, all you had to do was sort of mistake one thing for another, and then you sort of convinced yourself that one uh, one little ravine was the ravine that you were actually looking at when it actually wasn't. And then you could sort of convince yourself that well, you know, we should be going this way. I, I do actually remember we we we. Um, we, I don't think we got back on, on by GPS, though. No, we totally had to follow the GPS because I took a reading where the car was parked. And we just eventually said, screw the map. <laughs> we're going to head we? in a straight line for the that. car. Okay. Yeah, because we were, like, climbing up these silly hills. That we, I mean, yeah, we were so yeah, far. I remember afraid. that. Yeah, it was pretty wild. It was pretty and that wild. was just because it was, it was getting dark. We were losing daylight, and we were just like, you know what? We need to make a, a beeline straight for the car. Uh oh. And by the time we got to the car, it was completely dark, and uh, the map eventually failed us. Uh, yes, I to, to bring this back on topic, and the closest gaming analog I, can, I, I could right. think of that right. is, you know, back in the Bard's Tale days, where you'd have to draw your own map. And if you miscounted your turns, or the number of left-hand turns you were making, your map would be no good. Yep. You have to keep looking for landmarks, and you had to... Um, constantly go back and forth. So uh, here's the most recent connection that I can make. I like the Bard's Tale connection because that very few games have the courage to actually force you to figure out on your own where you are. And that was a sort of a hallmark of... I, was it Bard's Tale, Troy? I, I, I so mix up like Bard's Tale and Wizardry and the Might and Magic games. Okay, for a long time, you all they all made you do, draw your own maps. Okay, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's right. You used to need graph paper to, to play a computer yeah. RPG. 
Uh, here's a recent one that did that, and they backed off of it. And I was very disappointed that they did, but I can kind of understand why. Uh, in Lord of the Rings Online, you used to have just a, a sepia-tone, vague map. And as you're wandering around this virtual Middle Earth, every now and then you'll hit a landmark. And like World of Warcraft, it'll say, hey, you've discovered, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a little pin on your map that appears. And when you get quests, you are told where to go to perform the quest, usually relating strictly to place names, often these little pins that you would have to discover by exploring. Uh, now, as a result, I think it was frustrating for a lot of players who were like, hey, I just want to get my 12 boar hides, and I don't really know where they are, and I haven't explored enough to figure it out. So that was frustrating to them. Um, so eventually what they did was, in, in one of the recent patches, and this is really disappointing, is now you just highlight a quest, and then on the map it shades the exact area where your your quest gatherable is, or it tells you the exact area where you have to go kill a dude. Um, so it's basically you're just following another carrot, a little GPS navigation system. But it used to be that you had to relate the map to the landmarks that you were seeing and to the edges of forests and to mountain ranges when you were playing Lord of the Rings online. And they don't do that anymore. Just as it was back in the olden days. Yep. yep. That's disappointing, I guess. So it's a, it's a completely comprehensible uh, design change. Especially, yeah, because, you know, they get people who are like, hey, in World of Warcraft, I don't have to do it this way. You know, Far Cry, actually. So Far Cry 2, if I'm not mistaken. You know what? That's another one. Far Cry 2, the map was a physical object that you would call up, like your gun or your flashlight or whatever, that you would call up and you would look at it to figure out where you were and then you would put it down and you would look around you. Far Cry 2 didn't have you following a waypoint carrot. Uh, Here's the problem is that you might get fined or suspended because you have brought up a shooter in an example about strategy game maps. So, um, But there's uh, there's resource management because you have to be careful about allocating ammunition and your grenades. Does that count? Oh, right. Do you have to build a base where it builds ammunition for you? No. Hmm. Okay. You have to buy them, though. Oh, here you go. You have to gather diamonds... That's resource gathering, and then okay. spend them on different uh, weapons and upgrades. So oh. that's like that's kind of base building, and you do have to go to a base to change your weapons out. Can you issue orders while the game is paused? Ugh, rats, no. <laughs> you got me. Okay. All right, All I'll right. pay the fine. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, want to go. This has been a mostly a positive uh, podcast. We can't have that. Uh, some negatives, but bad map design decisions. Wow. Anything, Where to start? Anything stick out? A game. I, oh, oh! If we're talking about strategy game, I was going to yeah. bring up Infamous, but that's an action game, so I'm not right. going to bring it up. That's uh, pronounced Infamous, though. Infamous. Oh, see, see, so I'm thinking like now I want to talk about like Liberty City and how they designed Liberty City and Grand Theft Auto 4. But no, let's go to strategy games. Bad <laughs> strategy game maps. Over to you, Bruce. Um, well, um, and you can Battle use Battle Isle. What the hell? Those battles are terrible. Battle yeah, Isle. Yeah. Battle like one of those old Blue Bite games? Yeah, Battle Isle. Like Battle Isle 3 or something. One of the bad Battle Isles. The map is so bad I don't even remember it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go, see? I win. <laughs> what about... Well, there's, such, there's like those Advance Wars games where every map is instead just like a little tactical... Almost like a chess puzzle. Those always sort of... Uh, those just always seem just so glib to me. 
Well, it, I, it doesn't help that like all the maps end up being like Ziggy cartoons if you look, hold them back far enough. <laughs> I mentioned what that because try so. Well, I'm, I, I asked that question because I was trying to think of an example myself, and I couldn't because I find it easy to get really excited about maps. Though I don't really get disappointed or upset by maps like I do about AI or bad animations or bad plots or bad history. But I don't get really excited or angry about a bad map. I get really enthused about a good map, though. So, well, I, I mean, I, this, this is going to be a, this is a little inappropriate. I'll pay the fine for this as well. But I really do think of Infamous, where this, this is actually probably more of a discussion of level design. Mm-hmm. But Infamous is one of those open world action games. But it's based on a map. You progress through different terrain as you're playing. It's a three island city. Uh, and there's this idea that you sort of learn the layout of, mm-hmm. of one island, and it's an action game. It's a big combat sandbox, but you're playing on levels, which in a way are maps. And as you unlock different areas, uh, like I think it's an example of an unimaginative way to do it. Uh, they just didn't do a very good job of giving you a combat playground. Now, maybe that's not really a map discussion, though. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so bad strategy game maps. I never cared for, you know, Bruce loved the Heroes of Might and Magic stuff. Again, it was almost like Advance Wars, is I never cared for maps that were really just puzzles in disguise. That was what bothered me about the Heroes of Might and Magic thing. what are you talking about? Heroes of Might and Magic maps were like the way that it was in Heroes of Might and Magic times. I mean, that was just a, that was a time when everything was a puzzle. And so that was how they had to make it. I'm not challenging its historicity. I'm simply challenging its gameplay. Uh, so I would actually yeah. highlight those, Troy, and <laughs> even though I didn't play it a lot, like Heroes of Might and Magic 5, this big, colorful, you know, candy-colored place festooned with all kinds of little doodads, like, just so busy and so much stuff, but it's always like this little map puzzle. Uh, well, we'll ask so, our readers, our, our listeners, I guess, not our readers, to pitch in with uh, examples of bad map design. Generally, they're pretty forthcoming. You can either comment... In the uh, Flash of Steel post, or if you're reading this or listening to this at quarter to three, where a lot of our links come from, you can certainly comment there. Uh, next week is E3. I'm going to be there, so it's unlike, and I'll be leaving on early Monday morning, because unlikely we'll be having a recording on our regular recording night, which is Sunday night. I hope to record something at E3. You still up for that, Tom? I'll be there. I'm looking forward to hanging out, and yeah, let's bring Great. a tape recorder. We have a tape recorder. I have a little digital thing. And Maybe we can borrow Bruce's stereo. Just remember to hit the stereo button. <laughs> uh, so we'll hopefully sometime mid uh, next week, we'll just upload some rough cuts from E3. Um, I've already set up a conversation with the developers of Paradox uh, Studios to discuss Hearts of Iron 3 and East India Company. And you also set up the conversation because that was really good. Ugh, Bruce, not everything is about 70s cinema. Oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, next week, stay tuned for the E3 broadcast sometime midweek. There'll be rough cuts, not nearly as flashy as this great uh, piece of audio work. And the week after that, we'll be talking about The Sims. So, with Sims 3 coming out, that will be the big topic. So have your, I don't know, your earbuds ready. I don't know, what a stupid thing to say. <laughs> that can be your new tagline. If have I do my stupid ear- coffee have, thing. Have your earbuds say. ready. God, I am I am so tired. Say good night, everyone. Good night, all. Good night, all. One, two, three, and to the folks. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door.